This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Batten, a principal at Homestake. Homestake pursues a variety of business models, all designed around connecting more local investors with more local companies. If you care about community and you care about your community in particular, and you care about the kind of the biodiversity of your local business ecosystem, then you got to contemplate this. Jeff and his Homestake colleagues position themselves as finance redefined, and I'm interested to learn what that means. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great great to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? So I grew up in a tiny farming community uh, in the middle of Illinois. So lots of corn and soybeans in every direction and uh, grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. So my dad and grandfather had a, had a two-state uh, distributor business in, in sort of industrial uh, gases and that kind of thing. My my mom's family were in the trades. You know, I think at kind of various points in my career, I've spent some time when I got out of school in bigger corporations. And, you know, I think what I realized through those experiences was I was born an entrepreneur. I didn't know that, or I was raised one. I think, you know, by being raised within the kind of family that I was, it made me realize that my heart's with small businesses, you know, it's not, it's not with the big corporation. So that's kind of what led me to be where I am. And so you spent some time in Silicon Valley, as many entrepreneurs do, and then uh, was a refugee after the dot-com bust, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it was a kind of a funny uh, outcome for me. I, I, I left San Francisco in carnage, really, in 2001. There as were, did many folks. Yeah, there yeah. were failed businesses all over the place. Moved to Bozeman and come to find out there's a thriving dot-com in Livingston, Montana, right. uh, at the time called printingforless.com. And yeah, I ended up there. Uh, for about five years as a combination CFO and marketing person, uh, which is maybe helps understand kind of how my brain works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think it, it sort of gave me this new, new experience in finance. I, I have a finance degree. That's what I went to school for. But I worked for these bigger corporations, you know, doing giant transactions with Wall Street and all a really interesting and great experience. And then when I came to Printing for Less, you know, we didn't need $100 million. We needed a million dollars. Right. <laughs> so it was a complete... Sometimes it's harder to raise a million than it is 100. Yeah, exactly right. And and uh, so there was a whole bunch of new learning to be done. Through that, it sort of made me understand that, especially then, this is 20 years ago now, a little bit more than 20 years ago. I mean, Montana's access to capital is kind of the, the term in the in the industry, was very difficult. There were not any venture capital funds here. There were really not any angel groups uh, come together. So, you know, it sort of started me down this path of like, always be thinking outside the box of how are we going to solve the next problem of mm -hmm. where's the capital going to come from? Luckily, we were able to, you know, combine different things at Printing for Less to accomplish what we needed. But since that time, like that experience of having a hard time raising the capital for a great business that was growing well and adding new employees all the time and adding new clients all of the time, you know, it really got me thinking about why 
our venture capital, like true blue venture capital type investors slamming the door in our face. Mm. And the reason was is because of our location. And I think it was also because we were not necessarily, we didn't necessarily present as a billion dollar outcome kind of an opportunity. Sure. The, the common thread between all these different companies, lots of different industries that I've worked in, common thread is well-run companies, good people, good community members, good business idea, or already a, a whole bunch of customers, but not necessarily the billion-dollar outcome. Yeah, every horse is not a unicorn. But the point being is there are a wealth of amazing businesses here in Montana and, and throughout you know, the, the Northern Rockies. And it sounds like what you're up to at Homestake is to try to provide mechanisms to support not only those entities, but also people who want to support those entities as well. Yeah, I, I would say that's exactly what we're up to. You know, the way we think about it is there's a large gap in the middle of the capital markets where if you are not sexy enough or have the billion dollar outcome as a possibility, then you're probably not a good fit for venture capital or even for angel groups. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you may not be ready to talk to a bank yet either because you might not have collateral. There's a lot of space between there and yeah. there's probably... 99% of companies fit in that white space one way or another. With Homestake, what we've been trying to pull together and have successfully done is let's find ways to use different kinds of structures rather than the, what we always call the exit-based paradigm that you hear about on Shark Tank and is basically the approach that is used by venture capital and, and traditional angel networks. Can I just pause on that? Because sure. it is odd to me how that is often the question that founders get asked very early on, right when they're trying to get their business off of the ground is what is your exit strategy? Yep. That's just kind of a bizarre way to think of launching a business for the purpose of sale or for the purpose of some public offering or, or something like that. Certainly appropriate for some, but as you said, there's this vast space that captures most businesses where that is just sort of an odd way of thinking about it. Yeah, I completely agree. It's 99 point something percent of companies yeah. that probably don't have that kind of a story. And I think that that starts to scratch the surface of maybe the bigger philosophical thing that we're trying to address with Homestake is this idea that the only way uh, that an investor can get a rate of return is through the sale of a company to a bigger company is leading to, in our opinion, a lot of really bad outcomes for our society. You know, like this, this consolidation, relatively rapid consolidation of corporate power from the way it was, you know, you want to call it 20 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever time frame you want to look at. The general trend is for larger companies to buy smaller companies and they may or may not allow uh, local control to stay in place after that happens. Generally speaking, local control goes away. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you see that wages have stagnated largely for very many people. And you mm -hmm. see a lot of main streets. Luckily, where we are here, you know, I am, I'm here visiting in Missoula today and where I live in Bozeman, like our main streets are doing pretty well. College but, towns. That yeah, helps. college towns help. But, you know, a lot of other towns don't see that anymore because a lot of dollars are being, you know, kind of airlifted out of their communities to retailers that deliver by UPS. And in some cases just, you know, can no longer compete with the big corporate it seems like that cycle perpetuates itself. Like look at some of the shocks that have occurred 
in our economy over the last 20 years, like the financial crisis sort of leads to fewer and bigger banks that are yep. you know, even more bigger and more too big to fail in, in such a way, or like COVID hits and Amazon just gobbles up so much more share right. for a variety of reasons, but the sort of bigness begets bigness. And right. that feedback loop is one that it sounds like you all are not only concerned about and its implications for society, but thinking of ways to maybe stall it or, or break it up or provide alternatives. Yeah. I mean, we'd like to give examples of how we don't have to do it this way. Sure. Right. Like it's all of our money, whether we're buying uh, goods for our family that we need to have, or we're investing dollars, it's our money. We get to decide what to do with it. So I think it's that whole vote with your wallet thing. Um, you know, one of the things you just said that, that it kind of reminds me of is a, a bit ago, you had interviewed uh, Cole Mannix with, right. with Old Salt Co-op. Cole and I have known each other a long time, and I found myself sort of shouting at the radio as you guys were talking about how, you know, consolidation, like everybody is aware of the consolidation in the meatpacking industry and how it came to light during COVID, mm -hmm. right? Come to find out having whatever it is, three or five meatpacking companies that control basically the whole supply chain, not a really great resilient way to structure an economy. Yeah. And so while that is absolutely true in in the food industry, what I would say is that the data says this is true in every industry. That the consolidation uh, effect is is harming uh, really sort of like we we actually talk about it as a as a biodiversity type of a thing. Okay. Where you know, a lot of us know about uh, monocrops and, and what it does to the environment. And we, we know that grizzly bears need X amount of, of individuals in a population for them to be healthy. So we talk about biodiversity, and at least in our neck of woods, quite a bit. What people don't really think about is what is the biodiversity of our business ecosystem? What I can say through like a, some of the data that I mentioned earlier is we're basically consolidating and consolidating and consolidating in a way that's causing that biodiversity to fall. And so, you know, to, to round it back to Homestake, like, yeah, we're trying to create examples of ways that you don't have to do that. Way, yeah. So what are some of those ways? I think we had a good sense of the problem. What are some of the solutions that you think are viable? So, you know, we've basically recognized, you know, again, 99% of companies, let's call it, are not appropriate for exit-based investments. Like mm -hmm. to think that Joe's muffler shop is going to get bought out sure. is kind of a silly They're thing not to think. Like, it's probably yeah. not an IPO anytime soon. So, so what we do instead is we basically, you know, meet with founders and basically, you know, help them understand that it doesn't all have to be Shark Tank. You don't have to give up 30% of your company or whatever the asking price is for yourself to get the growth capital that you need. Mm -hmm. There are other ways. And, you know, back to that sort of lack of access to capital that I mentioned earlier, like this is where we have innovated is to say, all right, how about we find a way to be patient and be equity investors, but at the same time, kind of structure our exit of our investment from the beginning and have it not tied, like specifically not tied to the sale of the company. We don't want those founders to exit their businesses and all of the great causes that they support in their communities and the employees that they have. Like we'd rather set it up so that if they want to do that, sure, that's your decision, but capital should not be deciding that for you. Okay. Right. So a lot of the times the way we invest is, is we tie our, our return to the revenue of the company. 
Okay. And so if the revenue of, you know, let's be an extreme example. Next quarter, you have zero revenue for some reason, then there would be no payment due. Mm -hmm. If the following quarter, you have a great quarter for some other great reason, then there would be a payment due, right? So so it's a more intuitive of, a way uh, of investing. And I think that's what we hope to be able to do with Homestake. You know, right now we're building a, a, our second fund to really target the Northern Rockies. I mean, I, I say that, I'm sure, you know, we want to hear from businesses all across the Northern Rockies. My guess is that we'll probably deploy most of our investments in Montana just because that's where our personal networks are, right? And this is a relationship-based investment. It's not transactional. Like it's more about do both sides get a fair deal here? That's what we're always seeking to create is that the business gets a fair deal and the investor gets a fair deal. And so does the community, therefore. We'll be back to my conversation with Jeff Batten after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Mark Moss from Tell Us Something, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Jeff Batten of Homestake about the importance of community investment. So what does it look like from the investor side of the equation? Does an investor sort of have to share your value system? Do they want to support that ethic? Do they do so sort of expecting a lower rate of return or a or more volatile rate of return? Or like how, how do you kind of conceptualize it from the investor side? Our, our point of view is that we are almost a new asset class. We are definitely not looking to create subsidized rates of return. Like we think that if this is really gonna work and if we can really make an impact on a larger scale than just our little community, it's gonna have to be market rate, right? Investors have to get compensated correctly for the risk that they're taking, but they don't have to have outsized Facebooks or Google type returns in order for the risk paradigm to be right. Mm-hmm. So, so the way we think about it is instead of doing the typical VC approach, typical venture fund makes 10 investments. They really expect one or two of them to be successful. And so the one or two that need to be successful have to be very, very successful in order for their fund to actually make a fair rate of return. High, high potential. To, right. You know, just to correct for all the zeros. Correct. So, so we approach it from, I would say, the opposite end of the spectrum. Instead of thinking about only, you know, trying to hit a home run every time and therefore striking out a lot, we want to hit base hits. Sure. You know, singles and doubles are a fantastic even walks, thing. Right? And even yeah. walks. And let's do that nine or 10 times out of 10. Sure. And all of a sudden, the rates of return are market, right? Like you're back to a, a great rate of return. Investors are happy for it. So to your question of like, do they share our ethos? I think a good share of the folks that we've been working with so far absolutely do, but I don't think it's a requirement. And and I think that that's the key of us, you know, if we can successfully sort of share this with other communities, get other communities to follow in our footsteps. That's part of this is, is this needs to be a market-based solution, right? Are there things in policy or whatever that maybe would help this succeed? Maybe, but that is such a tangled web of, you know, 
Politics That's a whole different game. and lobbying, yeah. and I, I, we don't have the money to be able to go toe-to-toe with Blackstone, for To example. your point, however, like the whole world of consolidation favors the large and the Absolutely. lobbying space because they yep. can deploy their high-paid lobbyists to- To write the up. laws. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And we, we're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> no, nor do the folks that I think you represent benefit from those laws, right? Right. Those laws favor the large. That's right. And so, you know, from from our point of view, what we want to do is instead create a situation where lots and lots of investors can rethink how they invest. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I don't at all think that somebody should take anywhere close to 100% of their net worth and invest it in this way. But what I do think is that if you if you care about community and you care about your community in particular, and you care about the kind of the biodiversity of your local business ecosystem, then you got to contemplate this. You got to think about how many of my dollars might I do in this way and really make a difference. Because that's ultimately, that's the, that's the thing, right? Like in our first round of, of activity, we invested a little bit more than $4 million and we impacted a lot of companies sure. doing that. Yeah. And, and with our next fund, we'll probably impact twice as many or so uh, companies through what we do. And when you look around, like that actually in, in our state, it's a lot of impact. When we invest, we often partner with uh, banks and uh, what are called certified development financial institutions, CDFIs. Okay. Like MoFi Like here MoFi in, Missoula. in yep. Missoula, exactly. You know, we partner with those folks to get a total deal into a company a lot of the time. Okay. So even our, you know, call it $4 million that we invested last time around, a total of $36 million flowed into the companies we invested in. And, and so, you know, a lot of the times we're sort of that that piece of capital that unlocks the whole deal and makes the whole deal possible. Coming back to kind of the the education of the investor, you know, I, I think there's two sides of it. I mean, this is the challenge of what we do. The challenge of what we do is we have to educate entrepreneurs as to why jumping on the bullet train is what I always call it, mm-hmm. you know, taking venture capital or a, a convertible note or whatever to get your first money in the door. You really want to be sure that you are actually a bullet train. Because if you're not, you're likely to just kind of hit the end of the railroad and you're going to have to go start your next company. Okay. Right? They just run out of time. Right. And if instead you're a regular business is what we always call them in air quotes, you know, that's just going to grow five, 10, 20% a year. And you've got a reasonable path for doing that. Maybe get yourself educated about what kind of money you ought to take. On the other hand, the education component that we have to attack is getting investors to understand that the consolidation game, while when a big deal happens, right? Like people celebrate and they made a nice payday that day. You got to think about what was the downside of that outcome. If you did a local investment that did that, are those jobs still going to be here? Are those are the the executive team going to that, that drove the ethos of that company still going to be in charge? Like all of those kinds of things really matter to the outcome for a community. So I want to get a sense for how accessible this is to investors. Is it for for somebody like me who's not like a, a big fish? Can I portion a portion of my investment, uh, of my you know, my income that I can afford to invest into something like what you're describing? There's a lot of kind of crowdfunding has become a new thing in the last few years. The Kickstarters um, kicks, and those sorts of yep. things. 
There's a variety of them. And, you know, in general, for the health of democracy and for the health of biodiversity in business ecosystems, I think those are a great thing. The challenge that we, you know, this is one of the challenges that we have is that in order to do what we're doing, which we're a small team trying to trying to show this new paradigm, we haven't chosen to take that piece of the pie on. So what we do is we work with accredited investors is what it's called. You may very well be one, Justin. A lot of people are, okay. and they don't even realize that they are. You can find a definition online and find out if you are. But I think that sort of also begs the question or points out like what we're really trying to do, which is to start the conversation and start the thinking within the investor community to say, wow, those home state guys are doing something cool, right? I, obviously, we hope that's what people think. But why can't I choose from five of those or 10 of those or 100 of those? Right. Because that's really what we need. Like, we don't want to be the next giant manager of money. What we want to see happen is individual communities have their own little version of what we have. I yeah. think that over time, if that kind of traction can be had, then I think we have a we being the the citizenry of our country, you know, have a good leg to stand on to go back to Congress and basically say, hey, you know those rules that you passed in 1920? They're really kind of dumb for the modern world, and mm -hmm. they don't fit what we all want to be doing in our communities and how we want to invest. We need these to change, and then all of a sudden, everybody can be involved in this, you know. But it's a long play, but we got to start somewhere is kind of, I guess, how we think about it. And so flip it around to the perspective of the the entrepreneur or the bus existing business owner that, that needs financing of some sort, whether it's from a bank or they're thinking that, that a venture investment might be appropriate or they just kind of don't know what's available. Yeah. What sort of business is appropriate? What sort of stage in a business life cycle is a sort of entity that you want to be talking to? Yeah. So it's a funny question because we've really invested in all kinds of businesses. You know, our, our approaches have worked for organic farms, um, to a eating disorder center, hmm. to a mature software company, to a almost just started software company. In general, it's better if there's an existing client base and some amount of revenue coming in the door. Like it's probably not the greatest thing for truly a pre-revenue high-tech startup. But the good news is there's other players in our marketplace that want to talk to those folks, yeah. right? You know, so I, so I think the, the breadth of how we can adjust, you know, we always think of those different levers in the deals that, that we construct. You know, we can pull a lever and push a different one and make it fit a different industry. Largely, I think the thing for folks to be thinking about is, do I want this opportunity to partner with somebody for, a, you know, a relatively, I don't know if it's short-term or long-term, you know, most of our deals are kind of expected to run five to eight to 10 years. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, that's kind of a short time in most businesses, mm -hmm. you know, but, but does that founder see why being able to essentially buy back their investment from us and leaving them to be the, the majority holder always of their business, if that's attractive, then it's something to think about. So I think one question that, that is reasonable is how do you all make money? in this model? You know, the way we work is we earn a, a relatively small amount of management fee for the dollars that are in our fund. Mm -hmm. And then if our investors make a profit on the investment, it's not a really big if because we're doing well on all the ones that we've made in the past. 
if they make a, a profit, then we share in that profit. So, you know, we're mostly motivated by helping companies to succeed and, you know, make their revenues. In our case, a lot of times, like, keep them steady. That actually works fine for many of our investments. Or in some others, it's like, we need to help you grow your revenues. But it's pretty... Um, aligning, right? When when it's a simple thing, it's about the revenue. If we can introduce you to another customer or or even our investors might introduce you to another customer, then we're all pulling in the same direction, right? right I mean, that right. that's the, the example of our uh, organic farm that we invested in. It was our very first investment. Many of our investors are members of their CSA mm-hmm. uh, program. And many introduced their friends to the CSA program oh, interesting. Be- because yeah. of, you know, knowing like, well, heck, I'm, I'm invested in this now. Sure, why you not? Know? So, so it's that kind of dynamic that really brings it full circle to a community thing where the business is benefiting from the investor being involved, the investor is benefiting from having struck a good deal, and the community is retaining that wealth, but also being introduced to these new, these new businesses that maybe they didn't know about before. Sure. You know, as we close, Jeff, you know, not everybody's an accredited investor. Right. But I think a lot of folks listening can kind of buy into the concept that you're describing and maybe hadn't thought so much about how their their spending habits, how they vote with their dollars, how that affects their local economy. Just remind us, like maybe if you're not an accredited investor, how can you still participate in the vision that you're describing for a, a healthier sort of local and regional economy? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the real straightforward one of of really thinking about your consumer dollars and and looking at locally owned, I mean, even better, employee owned companies as your as the place that you maybe frequent as opposed to having something shipped from afar. And then when it gets to the investment side, I mean, while we have this, uh, we're using the simplification of using accredited investors. There's plenty of opportunities in our state of people doing true crowdfunding type things that allow you to invest locally. Mm -hmm. So you can look around for those. I mean, you know, there's not exactly a clearinghouse that at least I know of that you can quickly go to and find. But I know, for example, Old Salt Co-op that we talked about earlier, they did a crowdfunding uh, campaign. You know, there's opportunities. You kind of have to pay attention, right? Like, I think that's the one thing that I understand I'm asking people to do. Most people kind of have compartmentalized investing into, you know, a small part of their lives. And I think that that's maybe the favor that we're asking everybody to consider is using your dollars as an afterthought to perpetuate exactly what the system is doing now. Something maybe everybody should well stop and think about, like, how can I make a small difference? And yeah, I'm going to have to use my brain power to, to figure that out. But what I can tell you is our group of folks that are involved with us have really enjoyed seeing you know, the results of what they have done. To be able to see a company succeed in your town because you helped support them in the early days, it's a pretty big payoff, right? Like it's it's a good investment, but it's also a really great psychic payoff. You know, I think that's where looking for the opportunities, trying a little harder on it, maybe is worth the effort. Yeah, and as a lot of communities in Montana kind of grapple with growth and what that means and the changes we're all experiencing, I think allocating the mind power, as you'd put it, to these sorts of issues and opening up your mind to how you can influence the system on a variety of levels you might not have previously considered is, is, is wise advice. So, Jeff, applaud what you all are up to. If folks want to learn more about it and, and maybe get involved, uh, where would you point them online? 
Yeah, our easiest thing is just our website, which is uh, homestake.com. And, you know, you can feel free to email us or, or get in touch any other way that's on the website. And, you know, we're always happy to visit and, and share what we're up to. Awesome. Jeff, thanks so much. Thank you, Justin. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.